Amen. Please be seated. So last week we covered essentially the entire chapter of Luke 10. And what we found was that Luke chapter 10 is a chapter with a building crescendo. It begins with Jesus sending the 72 ahead of him. Their mission was to cast out demons, heal the sick, and proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand. And Jesus tells them that his time is so short, that their mission is so important, they can't waste time arguing with people who refuse to believe the truth. At this point, if people in those towns refused to believe what they'd seen Jesus do and heard him say, there was no argument, no proof that would convince them. Jesus was literally walking towards Jerusalem. He was walking towards his crucifixion, and he had no time to waste. After the opening of Luke 10, it transitions into one of the most well-known parables in the Bible. But we said that the parable of the Good Samaritan wasn't just a generalized moral tale about helping the less fortunate. The parable of the Good Samaritan wasn't just the random musings of Jesus talking about charity and altruism. No, we said that the parable of the Good Samaritan was best understood in the preceding context of Luke chapter 10. I think the reason that Jesus uses a Samaritan as the good guy in his parable, the reason that he shows a priest and a Levite pass by, is because Jesus was describing the kingdom of God and the kind of people who would reside in it. And in that parable, we see that someone like a Samaritan could embody all of the qualities of a righteous person. The parable shows a Samaritan is someone who is capable of embodying all of the qualities of those who have the life of God in them. And we said that just sounds obvious to us. That just sounds like the gospel. But we must understand what a seismic shift in thinking that would have been for almost any Jew who heard it. The kingdom of God and those who reside in it was not about your bloodline. It was not about your family pedigree or your standing in the religious community. It wasn't even about the number or the severity of the sins you've committed. It was about repentance of those sins, the forgiveness of those sins. Being in the Messiah's kingdom was about receiving the very life of the Messiah himself. Luke 10 begins with a strong sense of urgency, and by the time we reach the parable of the Good Samaritan, the tone and the pacing of the story have accelerated, and you can tell that the story is building towards something even bigger. And building upon that incredible parable, you have the capstone of Luke 10, the story of Mary and Martha. And this is where I did my best to choose my words carefully. I said that it was the building progression of Luke 10 that made it very hard for me to see that story of Mary and Martha as a disconnected story about our priorities and how easily they can be misplaced. The story of Mary and Martha couldn't just be an object lesson about the balance between practicality and spirituality. If it were, then it shared almost no relationship with the rest of Luke 10, and that would be very unusual. So there must have been some connection with the rest of the chapter. But if the story of Mary and Martha related to the rest of Luke 10, you would think that the story of Mary and Martha would continue to build the tension in the drama that was found earlier in the chapter. And at first glance, the story of Mary and Martha certainly doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like a paradigm shift has occurred or people's minds are being blown. At first glance, the story seems almost benign. The urgency and tension of Luke 10's beginning don't seem to be an undertone with Mary and Martha. Things seem a little awkward with them, but it's hard to sense any real tension. The paradigm shift that's found in the Good Samaritan, a paradigm shift that rewrote what people could expect in God's kingdom, doesn't seem to be present in the story of Mary and Martha either. So what's going on? How did the story of Mary and Martha fit with the rest of Luke 10? Well, remember we said 
I think the story of Mary and Martha fits with the rest of the chapter because it's every bit as radical and culturally charged as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think in the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus speaks about changes and concepts that are so radical that those who first heard them must have been shocked and amazed that Jesus was saying something like this at all. You see, I think the real underlying tension between Mary and Martha had very little to do with Martha needing help in the kitchen. I think the real tension and drama of the story was that Mary was engaged in an activity that was exclusively reserved for men. Mary was doing something that only men did and was seated in a place where only men should be. I pointed out that in that time, houses themselves were divided into male and female spaces. The roles of men and women, their expectations, were also very clearly defined. And what Mary did by walking in that room and sitting at the feet of Jesus was to cross a very important boundary within the house and anotherly equally important boundary within the culture. For a woman to settle down this comfortably among men in a space that was culturally reserved for men would have been a cultural signal of scandal and licentiousness. It's hard for us to find a cultural comparison to this, but imagine at the next men's group, a random, unmarried woman decides that she's going to go hang out with all the guys. Ladies, y'all good with that? Even if you are 100% certain that your husband could be trusted, something tells me you would be equally certain that that woman shouldn't be. I think that feel of scandal and suspicion is analogous to what's happening in the story of Mary and Martha. But amazingly, Jesus doesn't seem to think or feel that Mary's actions are scandalous at all. Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary. He doesn't ask her to leave and explain how she must be more culturally sensitive. Jesus doesn't think that Mary has done anything inappropriate, it seems. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to tenderly rebuke Martha. Jesus affirms that what Mary was doing was completely fine with the Messiah, even if it looked scandalous to them, even if it upset their, culturally, their cultural boundaries that had been drawn between men and women. And that was the same exact point Jesus had just made in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Jewish religious community had drawn illegitimate boundaries around who could inhabit the kingdom of God. They wrongly determined that someone like a Samaritan, by the condition of their birth, could never enter God's kingdom. And that someone like a priest or a Levite would be in the kingdom for the exact same reason. Their expectations about the kingdom of God were wrong, and as a consequence, their assumptions about who would be in and who would be out were wrong as well. I think in both the Good Samaritan and the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus is addressing cultural assumptions about the kingdom of God. Jesus was making a point that the kingdom of God was not just a cleaned-up version of the Jewish culture. It wasn't some idealized carbon copy of David and Solomon's kingdom. No, the kingdom of God may match some of their expectations, but it was going to be radically different in others. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that he was establishing, would be unlike any kingdom that had ever existed. The culture formed in his kingdom, unlike any culture the world had ever seen. And Jesus had shown countless times that his plans and ideas and the boundaries he set were not dictated to him by the cultures of the world. Nope. The story of Mary and Martha seems to show us that the kingdom of God had its own set of boundaries. 
The kingdom of God had its own set of expectations and roles, and the boundaries set in his kingdom were set by the king himself. The culture formed in his kingdom reflected God himself. I think the point Jesus makes in the story is that the Messiah was calling every single person in the whole world to come sit at his feet. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman were all being called to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and receive all he had to offer. I think that's what Mary and Martha is about. And I think that it's upon that beautifully radical foundation that yet another mind-blowing story takes place. Look in today's gospel text, Luke chapter 11. And I'll begin with the ending. You can only see today's gospel text in one of two ways. The first option is this. If you trust the biblical text and you love the Lord Jesus, today's gospel text is one of the most insanely beautiful invitations that have ever been given. The words spoken highlight the biggest shift in religious thinking that has ever occurred in the history of the world. That's option one. Option two is different. If you doubt the veracity of the text, if you do not follow Jesus as the Messiah, then the words of our gospel text are without a doubt the most arrogant and conceited words ever spoken by men. And those two extreme options are all we have to choose from because the sheer weight of what Jesus says in our text leaves no room. The explanation for why that is begins with two simple words. Our Father. Now, I know some of you may be thinking the idea of God as Father was a concept that came way before the New Testament. Way back in the story of the Exodus, as a matter of fact, God referred to Israel as his son. So the concept of God being Father shouldn't have sounded like anything new, right? But what occurred in Luke chapter 11 when Jesus said this, pray like this, our Father. That had never occurred in the history of the world. You see, it's true that way back in the Old Testament, God did call Israel his son. But as we all know, a prerequisite for being a son is being a dude. So did that mean all the females of Israel couldn't think of God as their father? Was it only the males of Israel that could claim God as their own? Of course not. The sonship of Israel encompassed all of the men and women of Israel because Israel's sonship to God wasn't based in their biology. It was based in a metaphor. God likened the whole nation of Israel as his son, and he likened himself as their father. But that's not what's happening in Luke chapter 11. When Jesus calls God his father, he isn't speaking metaphorically at all. Jesus is able to call God his Father because Jesus himself was the Son. The the Sonship of Christ is central to his being, and there's absolutely nothing metaphorical about it. In the Old Testament, Israel may have been likened to God's Son, but Jesus was the very definition of it. Jesus is literally the Son of the Father. So when Jesus, the Son of the Father, tells the disciples that they should pray like this, Our Father. Jesus is including himself in the word our. He's telling his disciples that they can call God their Father just like he does. He's telling his disciples that just as the Son calls upon his Father, they can as well and in the same way. 
Jesus is telling his disciples that the day of metaphor is over. The day of analogy and approximation are done. Jesus is inaugurating something brand spanking new. Those who call the Son Lord can call his Father their Father as well. And nothing like that had ever happened before. But how could it even be possible for something like that to happen? How could it be possible that mortal, fallen human beings could ever dare speak those words? Jesus could do it easily. Jesus can call the Father his Father because Jesus is the literal Son of the Father. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Jesus is perfect like the Father. He's uncreated like the Father. He's divine in the exact same way as the Father. But we? We are none of those things. So how in the world can we do this? How, how could we dare speak such brazen words? Words that locate us on the exact same relational level as the eternal Son of God. I think Jesus addresses that exact question in verse 13. He says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In Luke 11, we talked about the Father and the Son. We've talked about disciples and Israel. There's a story about boldness and persistence with a weird word, impotence. I've never heard that one. There's commands to seek and you'll find. Knock and doors shall be opened. But then in verse 13, Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit. And on the surface, the entrance of the Holy Spirit into the story feels like I'm getting T-boned at an intersection. It just came out of nowhere for me. I mean, Jesus was talking about being able to call his father our father, and now all of a sudden we're talking about the Holy Spirit? What's that got to do with anything? What's one have to do with the other? Well, in short, everything. There's a lot we could say this morning about receiving the Holy Spirit, a lot we could unpack, but I'll narrow it down to just one thing. Whatever else happens when you receive the Holy Spirit, know this. All that Jesus has, all that he won, all that belongs to him, all that he is becomes yours when you receive the Holy Spirit. What's his is now yours. What's yours is now his. Jesus takes our shame, our sin, and even our death and makes them his own. And in return for our garbage... He gives us new hearts. He gives us new lives. We are birthed again by the Spirit into a brand new family, a divine family, a family where Jesus is our groom and his Father is ours as well. And that is either the most beautiful thing I could ever hope to say to you or it's the absolute pinnacle of human arrogance. Because I have great news. (laughs) For as difficult as it may be to wrap our minds around every single bit of that, every single bit of that is true. In spite of all of your garbage and insufficiencies, Jesus Christ looks at you and by the Spirit wants to make you his very own. And he doesn't do this in ignorance. He knows us. He knows just how broken we really are, and he offers to bring us into his family anyway. He offers to take our sin and our shame, our self-centeredness and conceit. He offers to take our pride and arrogance. He even offers to take our very death and make them all his own. And what he offers us in return 
is his peace. He offers you forgiveness and life everlasting. By the Spirit, Jesus offers you himself. And in receiving him and being wed to him, calling his Father yours is only natural. I hope this morning that you've seen the beauty of the gospel, but more than that, I hope this morning that you leave with a renewed desire to know and love Jesus in a deeply intimate way. He loves you. He's made you for himself, and he calls you this day to come home to him, to live with him as his bride, to live in his father's house as sons and daughters of the father himself. Amen.